Hey friends, it's John. You know, this commentary is a act of love. Love for God, love for the church, his people, love for the Bible itself. And because of that, I'm literally giving it away. I'm making it a crowdfunded project, which means it's made possible by the generous support of people who support this commentary, support my whole online ministry. That's the reason I can do this and give this away. And I'm doing that because I love God, love his people, and love the Bible. I just want to make this teaching as accessible as possible. So because of that, let me say a huge, huge thank you to those of you who donate, whether you give a one-time gift or you're a monthly supporter. Thank you so much for making this possible. Thank you for the impact your generosity is having on the lives of people, both here in the States and all around the world. And if you're somebody who's benefited from the listener's commentary and from the Bible and Life online ministry, would you also consider supporting this ministry? You can give a one-time gift. You can become a monthly donor at the link down in the notes below or on the website on the support page. So thanks a ton for all of you who make this possible. With that, let's jump into Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is one of the most profound, most significant, most important and theologically rich paragraphs in all of the Bible. There's a lot to dig into. We don't want to race through it. So settle in, open up your Bible. Let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 26. And to set that up, let me just make sure we have the context before us. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul shows how the whole pagan world stands under God's just condemnation. And then in chapter 2, 1 through 3, 18, Paul puts the Jews in their place by saying that they too have sinned, they're thus under the curse of God's wrath, even as the law said they would be. And so having the Torah didn't advantage them one bit in the sense of being right before God. They can't claim the moral high ground and pretend that they have any an in with God or any moral superiority simply by having the Torah. They are guilty along with the Gentiles. And so when we reach Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul basically says, all the world is guilty before God. No one is going to be put into a right relationship with God simply by keeping the Torah. But notice the way our paragraph in this session opens up. Romans 3.21 begins with the words, but now. Don't just pass over that. But now. There is a strong chronological element here emphasized in the word now. As Doug Moo says in his commentary on Romans, God's plan of salvation unfolds in stages. There's a history, and the coming of Jesus the Messiah inaugurates a new stage in that plan. And so at this point in Romans, he is about ready to make a historical statement. A new situation has arrived, he says. What Paul will go on to say is that the time of Torah is past. God's righteousness is now received and experienced through putting our confidence in Jesus. All people, Jews and Gentiles alike, for there's no difference, are declared to be right with God and enter into his people now by faith in the Messiah through whom God's righteousness has been and is being achieved.
So, whereas Romans 1.18 through 3.20 laid out the case against mankind and concluded with all people standing before the just judge of the universe, silent, without a leg to stand on, unable to defend themselves, and guilty as charged, Romans 3.21 through 26 is going to say, and here's how God solved that problem. God, who is both holy and love, is unwilling to condemn all his most precious creation. And so how does God solve the problem? Well, the answer to that is found in this paragraph. Couple other preliminary notes. One is this: is that Romans three twenty-one through twenty-six is one long sentence in Greek, and that makes it hard sometimes to track. And our translations obviously don't show us that because they're trying to help us sort out what's going on. But it really is one long sentence in Greek, and the main clause of this one long sentence is. The righteousness of God has been manifested. So if you had ever diagram sentences in grammar school, right? Well, here's the main clause. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Everything else in Romans 3, 21 through 26 is in some way subordinate to this idea. It leads up to it. It uh, explains how it happened. It lays out some implication of it. And so 3, 21 through 26 is a summary of, of the revelation of the righteousness of God, which was introduced in Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you recall, when we talked about Romans 1, 16 and 17, we said that is the initial uh, thesis statement for the entire letter. Romans 1, 16 and 17 reads like this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous one shall live by faith. And so that's the initial statement of the thesis of the letter. Here in 321 through 26, now we get the more complete restatement of the thesis that is kind of the culmination of everything in between Romans 1, 16 and 17 and 3, 21 and following. That case against mankind leads to this more complete restatement of the thesis. And remember that we said in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that the righteousness of God refers to God's own righteousness. Not the righteousness he gives, but the righteousness he has summarized really as God's saving justice. The NIV has a problem in their translation with Romans 3, 21 through 26, because they translate it as a righteousness from God, not the righteousness of God. They interpret it as the righteousness that God gives. But then when they get down later in 3, 21 through 26, instead of translating the phrase, His righteousness, uh, in verse 26, they translate it as his justice, which is an acknowledgement that they should have translated it as his justice, his righteousness, in Romans 3, 21 and 22. And so all throughout this paragraph, we're addressing God's righteousness, his saving justice. How did God deal with the problem of mankind's sin and mankind's guilt? How did he unveil his saving justice, his righteousness to the world? And why is it for all people, both Jew and Gentile alike? Well, here we have the answer to that in Romans three twenty-one through 26. So let's jump in and look at the details. 
Romans 3.21 begins by saying, but now, that chronological shift, we've moved to a new stage in God's salvation plan. We're at a new point in history. A new situation has arrived that has changed how God's righteousness is experienced, how people are put into a right relationship with God, and where God's people are found. But now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so God's righteousness is manifested, revealed, apart from the law. That is, apart from the Torah, apart from the old covenant. This makes the gospel good news for everybody. Jews, since the Torah placed them in the defendant seat, guilty as charged as well, well, the gospel's good news for them. And for Gentiles, well, since the Torah fenced them off from God's people, they would have to convert to Judaism and keep the Torah, which in itself already condemned the Jews. It's good news for the Gentiles as well because it's apart from the Torah. So God's righteousness is now manifested at this new situation, this new time in history. It's manifested apart from the law, but it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, it's not opposed to the law and the prophets. It's not against the law and the prophets. It's testified to by the law and the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God, even though it's apart from the Torah, is what God was intending all along and what the law and the prophets were pointing towards and working towards. And so it's in sync with the law and the prophets. It's testified to the, uh, by the law and the prophets. Verse 22 goes on and says, This righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus the Messiah. Let me read verse 22. It says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The technical note we need to sort out is, how we understand the phrase, through the faith of Jesus Christ. That's the way it literally reads. They've translated it here, through faith in Jesus Christ, which is one possible understanding of the phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ. It could mean faith in Jesus, the faith that has Jesus as its object. It could also mean the faith or faithfulness of Jesus Christ himself, the faith that Jesus himself has. And it seems best to me to understand it in that latter sense. Most translations take it in the former sense, through faith in Jesus. But that makes the the immediately following phrase redundant, through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. It's like it's through faith in Jesus for all who believe. It's a little bit redundant. And so it seems best to probably understand the phrase, the faith of Jesus, to refer to the faith or faithfulness of Jesus. That means his faithful obedience to God, including his self-sacrificial death. That actually, I think, makes better sense of the, the just the simple little word, through. That is, the agency by which God carried out his saving justice is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so, this is the righteousness of God that comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for everybody who believes, for there's no distinction. All people can receive and benefit from this this righteousness of God that came through the faithfulness of Jesus. Verse 23 goes on and explains why there is no distinction. Verse 23 says, 
There's no distinction because, that's the sense of for at the beginning of verse 23, is because, because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the reason it's uh, for all people on the basis of believing, and there's no distinction, is because all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, there was this thought in the Jewish world of the day that uh, Adam, by virtue of the fall, and thus humanity along with him, lost the full expression of the glory of God that was given to them by virtue of their creation in God's image. Not that they totally lost God's image and not that they totally lost the glory of God. They have just been diminished, right? They have fallen from the full glory of God. One passage, a Jewish writing from uh, the time between the Testaments, third Barak, says this, Adam was divested of the glory of God. And this idea kind of seemed common among Jewish thinking. And so by virtue of mankind's fall, sin, we are not embodying and reflecting the full glory of God that we experienced and we displayed prior to the fall. Somehow we are less than we were. And so there, there's no distinction for experiencing the righteousness of God because we have sinned and fallen from the glory of God. Now, how does God solve this problem? Well, verse 24 and 25 really lay out in detail with all sorts of deep, rich theological terms what God did to solve this problem. Uh, it starts by saying that God declares people righteous, puts them in a right relationship with himself, and declares them righteous by as a gift of his grace. Notice what verse 24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Man, we've got serious th theology in one short phrase there. Being justified, the word justified keeps the law court imagery alive. The, the word justified pictures really a courtroom and pictures the verdict of the court. And so when you hear the word justified, you got to think in terms of the verdict being given. And not just any old verdict. To be justified is to be given a favorable verdict in view of the court. So the, the court, the judge, pounds down his gavel and declares a favorable verdict in the right, righteous, justified, declared to be right. That's the idea of being justified. Now, what's the problem with God justifying us, declaring us in the right, giving us a favorable verdict? Well, the first problem with that is we really are guilty, right? We really are guilty. We actually deserve an unfavorable verdict. That's the whole case Paul built from 118 through 320. Mankind is standing in the defendant's box, and he has nothing to say in his defense. He's guilty as charged. And yet, here in verse 24, Paul says that we are justified. We are declared in the right. We're given a favorable verdict. Not guilty. Pardoned. Acquitted, in some sense. Put in the right. The second problem with it is, well, how can God do that? Like, how can God be just righteous, how can he be a law-abiding just judge if he declares guilty as not guilty, as he gives guilty people a favorable verdict? And frankly, 
I think this isn't just a theological problem. I think this is a deep pastoral problem as well. Uh, Many Christians have a difficult time embracing their justification because they know they're guilty, right? Like we know we're guilty and we know it's not fair. How can God just turn a blind eye to our sin and our guilt and pretend like it didn't happen? How can he just sweep our wrong deeds under the carpet? And so, no, that we, we, we know we've done wrong, and, and thus we have a hard time really uh, reconciling what we know to be true about ourselves and what the gospel tells us, that we're forgiven fully and completely. Not only that, many Christians have a difficult time forgiving others because I can't just let them get away with this. Someone's got to hold them accountable for all the hurtful things they've done, right? Like, we feel that. Well, what Paul says in the second half of verse 24 on through verse 25, really lays the theological foundation for how can it be that God is just in doing this? How can it be that God is actually right in declaring us uh, not guilty, declaring us in the right? And thus it lays the theological foundation for resolving those pastoral problems, for why it is we can gladly receive our justification and know full well that we're right before God and why it is that we can uh, forgive other people knowing that we don't have to leave them on our hook. God will take care of it. And so here, what we're about to get is some significant theology that has massive pastoral implications. Notice what Paul says, being justified As a gift by his grace, so it's a sheer gift of his grace, right? It's not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we pay back. It's a gift. It's a gift motivated by the grace of God. Grace is undeserved favor, undeserved kindness, right? Grace is that that expression of God's love that, that makes him want to do good for people who don't deserve it. So we're justified, not not because we deserve it, but as a gift of his grace. How does God do that? Through, again, the means, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. On the streets of Paul's world, redemption was often associated with a slave mark. Purchasing a slave's freedom. To redeem a slave was to pay a price to set that slave free. And that was sort of the gut-level, street-level understanding of redemption in Paul's world. Among the Jews, what was redemption associated with? Well, the great act of redemption for the Jews was the Exodus, Egypt, Passover, the Exodus, right? Crossing the Red Sea, this massive story where God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. That was that great, mighty act of redemption for God that shaped the entire Jewish nation. You can read in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, how the, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is described as a redemption. You see it in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, this tribute to God's redemption of the people of Israel. And so the Exodus becomes the model of redemption for all of Jewish history and all of Jewish thinking. The whole Jewish mindset is shaped by that. Redemption is a great act of God by which he frees his people. And in the ancient world, redemption always means bringing freedom, typically at a cost, typically at a price. It's, it's, a, it's a way of 
paying a price to set someone or something or a group of someone's free. So God set Israel free from Egyptian domination by a redemption. And from that point on, that's what they look back to as the day of their great redemption. In fact, in the prophets, oftentimes you'll see them looking forward to a new redemption that's sort of like a new exodus. Why? Well, because Israel had been unfaithful and thus they had been banished from their land. They went back into captivity. And so now they have to be redeemed again and brought back. And so the exodus sort of becomes like a paradigm for a new redemption that's going to come. You can see that in places like Isaiah 43 and 44, where there's a new redemption yet to become, where God's going to gather his people out of captivity again. Well, what Paul is saying here in Romans 3.24 is that this new redemption, this new exodus, this new deliverance from captivity, this ultimate and great redemption that was promised in the poets and the prophets of Israel, that was sort of modeled after the original exodus of redemption from Egypt, this new redemption, this ultimate redemption was achieved by Jesus on the cross. It's available in Jesus. Our justification, our being put into a right relationship with God and receiving a favorable verdict from him is made possible through the redemption that Jesus achieved. And so everything that the prophets look forward to is achieved in Jesus. We now have a great final ultimate redemption from our great ultimate captivity, ultimately from our sin. And so we are justified through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to explain how that redemption came about. What, what did Jesus do that brought about this redemption? Well, verse 25 says this, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. We've got to clarify this word propitiation. Our redemption, this redemption is achieved in Jesus who was a propitiation. Well, what's a propitiation? Well, the word propitiation stands over against the ideas of wrath and condemnation. Remember, Paul said in 118 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. All men stand under God's wrath. They are justly condemned because of their wickedness. Well, propitiation stands against, over and against that wrath and condemnation. The backdrop here is Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement ceremony and ritual from Jewish history. The words mercy seat and make atonement for in Leviticus 16 are actually cognates of the, the same word translated propitiation here. And so when you get the Greek version of the Old Testament, they use forms of the very same word translated propitiation here. And that, that's why we know this is the connection for it. So that the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement ceremony happened when Jesus went to the cross. So the Day of Atonement looked forward to a sort of an ultimate Day of Atonement. And that ultimate Day of Atonement was when Jesus hung on the cross. In fact, the word atonement cover in Leviticus 16, in the Greek version of that, well, that was the place where God dealt with and took away the sins of the people. Again, the way Doug Moose says it in his commentary is those yearly Day of Atonement Atonement 
ceremonies are now fulfilled in this one great day of atonement when Christ died on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. And so Jesus is the propitiation. He is the ultimate day of atonement. The cross is the ultimate mercy seat, ultimate atonement cover where God dealt with the sins of the world. The way it worked is God's uh, just repayment for sin in some way that maybe we can't fully understand was caught up in and poured out on Jesus himself so that now the wrath of God that sin deserves in some sense is satiated, some sense satisfied when Jesus died for our sins and thus sins have been dealt with. The penalty for sin has been fully and finally dealt with in Jesus. And so now by entering into Jesus, you now you're, you are now free from the punishment and the penalty of sin because it was already atoned for, paid for, in the person of Jesus Christ. In this way, Jesus provides redemption, payment of a price to set us free from both the power and the penalty of sin, and thus we can be given a favorable verdict, not because we're not guilty, but because our guilt our penalty has been taken care of in Jesus. And so when God is the just judge of the universe, pounds down his gavel and says, not guilty, you're free to go. He is just in doing so because he didn't just sweep our sins under the carpet. He didn't just turn a blind eye to them. He dealt with them fully and completely in the person of Jesus. And thus he graciously acquits us of our sins and we receive a favorable verdict. And in this way, God is both the one who is just, he upholds what the law required, he's just, and he's the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That's where Paul goes in the last little bit of this paragraph. He says this, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. So he didn't hadn't dealt with them, he just passed over them previously. It was for the demonstration, he, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In some amazing way, God figured out this way that he could uphold his, his, uh, the requirement of his law, the requirement of his holiness and his, his law-abiding nature. He's just. He carried out and executed the appropriate penalty for mankind's guilt and rebellion and sin. And at the same time, he's able to justify those who have faith in Jesus. And so God has dealt with both parts of that. In his love, he wanted to set the sinner free. And in his holiness and justice, he needed to deal with sin. And he did both in the person of Jesus so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In this way, God maintains his integrity. And in this way, God has revealed his saving justice, his righteousness to the world. There is so much rich theology in this paragraph that the implications of it are huge. And so before we leave this paragraph, let me just point out a few kind of concluding reflections that I think are important for us to, to consider and to meditate on. The first is just the problem of evil, that this text tells us how God dealt with the problem of evil. In philosophy, 
people talk about uh, various philosophical considerations for the problem of evil. I've taught those myself. But the Bible approaches the topic very differently. It focuses on what God has done and is doing about the problem of evil. And according to the story of the Bible, God dealt with the problem of evil not in some abstract philosophical sort of way. God dealt with the problem of evil by coming into the problem himself, by becoming flesh, entering into it, experiencing the problem, and then dealing with it completely and fully on the cross. In the words of Peter Kreeft, God didn't varnish over our sin and our suffering. He came into it like a dentist or a surgeon to get it all out. Or again, Peter Kreeft says, he came, he entered into space and time and suffering. He came like a lover. Love seeks above all intimacy, presence, togetherness, and God came. The salient fact, the towering truth that alone keeps us from putting a bullet through our heads is that God came. He did the most important thing. He gave the most important gift. He gave himself. It's a lover's gift. Out of our tears, our waiting, our darkness, our agonized aloneness, out of our weeping, our wondering, our cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God came all the way right into that cry. God came into our world and he redeemed this broken down world for his purposes and his plans, for our good and our joy. He came and he redeemed us in and through the purpose of Jesus and he's making us right again. In the words of N.T. Wright, somehow God has to get his boots muddy and his hands bloody to put the world back to proper working order again. That's what God did in Jesus. That's how God has dealt with the problem of evil. Another reflection from this text that I think is super important for us is just to remember that justice is good news. Justice is good news in view of all the injustice in the world, in view of all the pain that that injustice caused. Justice is good news. We all yearn for it. In, in our darker moments, we cry out for it. We want the world to be made right again. Most of the population of the world throughout history has suffered oppression or injustice at the hands of those in power. We need justice. The gospel, the cross, brings justice, God's saving, reconciling justice to our world. In fact, Jesus himself knows what it's like to suffer injustice, to, to experience really a lynching is what he really experienced. Jesus was lynched, and not only that, he suffered a, a execution on trumped-up charges at the hands of oppressive power, and he did that to make us right again. He brought justice to the world in that way. So he knows the pain of injustice, and he's making the world right again. And lastly, all of this comes about, as Paul said, as a gift of God's grace. We become right with God, and we enter into his family as a sheer gift. Gracious and undeserved is what we get from God. Faith is not really like the one uh, act by which we can claim our gift, sort of like having to sit through a vacuum company's offer of a weekend at wherever, right? If we'll just listen to their sales pitch. Faith is not that. Faith is simply the act of opening our hands and saying yes and receiving the gift. It's not something we earned. It's not something we pay back. It's, simply, it's something we simply receive. In the words of the old hymn, 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's simply saying, I do to God. But the work, the initiative is God's. It's a gift of his grace. The creator God has acted to bring justice and deliverance and rescue to this broken down world. Because he's so faithful, so loving, so kind, he entered into the world to sort out the mess, to free us from our own foolish and sinful choices. And it cost him his life. And he was glad to do it for us. What remarkable, persistent, self-giving love is that? We receive this favorable verdict. We receive and experience God's saving justice as a gift of his grace. And that, my friends, is incredible good news.